Chapter Fifteen of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julia Lenarden. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Fifteen. Rossville was a county town. The courts were held there and its society was adorned with several lawyers of note who had law students, which fact was to the lawyer's daughters the most agreeable feature of their father's profession. It had a weekly market-day and an annual cattle-show. I saw a turnout of whips and wagons about the hitching-posts round the green of a Tuesday the year through, and going to and from school met men with bovine smell. Caucuses were prevalent, and occasionally a state convention was held, when Rossville paid honour to some political hero of the day with banners and brass bands. It was a favourite spot for the rustication of naughty boys from Harvard or Yale. Dr. Price had one or two at present who boarded in his house, so as to be immediately under his purblind eyes, and who took Greek and Latin at the academy. Social feuds raged in the academy coteries between the collegians and the natives, on account of the superior success of the former in flirtation. The latter were not consoled by their experience that no flirtation lasted beyond the period of rustication. Dr. Price usually had several young men fitting for college also, which fact added more piquancy to the provincial society. In the summer, riding parties were fashionable, and in the winter, county balls and cotillion parties. A professor came down from Boston at this season, to set up a dancing-school, which was always well attended. The secular concerns of life engaged the greatest share of the interests of its inhabitants, and although there existed social and professional dissensions, there was little sectarian spirit among them, and no religious zeal. The rich and fashionable were Unitarians. The society owned a tumble-down church. A mild preacher stood in its pulpit and prayed and preached, sideways and slouchy, this degree of religious vitality accorded with the habits of its generations. Surrey and Barmouth would have howled over the total depravity of Rossville. There was no probationary air about it. Human nature was the infallible theme there. At first I missed the vibration of the moral sword which poised in our atmosphere. When I felt an emotion without seeing the shadow of its edge turning toward me, I discovered my conscience which hitherto had only been described to me. There were churches in the town beside the Unitarian. The Universalists had a brand-new one, and there was still another frequented by the sedimentary part of the population, Methodists. I toned down perfectly within three months. Soon after my arrival at this house, I became afraid of Cousin Charles, not that he ever said anything to justify fear of him. He was more silent at home than anywhere. But he was imperious, fastidious, and sarcastic with me by a look, a gesture, an inflection of his voice. My perception of any defect in myself was instantaneous with his discovery of it. I fell into the habit of guessing each day whether I was to offend or please him, and then into that of intending to please— an intangible, silent, magnetic feeling existed between us, changing and developing according to its own mysterious law, remaining intact 
in spite of the contests between us of resistance and defiance. But my feeling died or slumbered when I was beyond the limits of his personal influence, when in his presence I was so pervaded by it that whether I went contrary to the dictates of his will or not, I moved as if under a pivot. When away, my natural elasticity prevailed, and I held the same relation to others that I should have held if I had not known him. This continued till the secret was divined, and then his influence was better remembered. I discovered that there was little love between him and Alice. I never heard from either an expression of denoting that each felt an interest in each other's individual life. Neither was there any of that conjugal freemasonry which bores one so to witness. But Alice was not unhappy. Her ideas of love ended with marriage. What came afterward, children, housekeeping, and the claims of society, sufficed her needs. If she had any surplus of feeling, it was extended upon her children, who had much from her already, for she was devoted and indulgent to them. In their management she allowed no interference, on this point only thwarting her husband. In one respect she and Charles harmonized. Both were worldly, and in all the material of living there was sympathy. Their relation was no unhappiness to him. He thought, I dare say, if he thought at all, that it was a natural one. The men of his acquaintance called him a lucky man, for Alice was handsome, kind-hearted, intelligent, and popular. Whether cousin Alice would have found it difficult to fulfill the promise she made mother regarding me, if I had been a plain, unnoticeable girl, I cannot say, or whether her anxiety that I should make an agreeable impression would have continued beyond a few days. She looked after my dress and my acquaintances. When she found that I was sought by the young people of her set and the academy, she was gratified, and opened her house for them, giving little parties and large ones, which were pleasant to everybody except Cousin Charles, who detested company. It made him lie so. But he was very well satisfied that people should like to visit and praise his house and its belongings, if Alice would take the trouble of it upon herself. I made calls with her Wednesday afternoons, and went to church with her on Sunday mornings. At home I saw little of her. She was almost exclusively occupied with the children, their ailments or their pleasures, and stayed in her own room or the nursery. When in the house I never occupied one spot long, but wandered in the garden, which had a row of elms, or haunted the kitchen and stables to watch Black Phoebe, the cook, or the men as they cleaned the horses or carriages. My own room was in a wing of the cottage, with a window overlooking the entrance into the yard and the carriage drive. This was its sole view, except the wall of a house on the other side of a high fence. I heard Charles when he drove home at night, or away in the morning, knew when Nell was in a bad humour by the tone of his voice, which I heard whether my window was open or shut. It was a pretty room, with a set of maple furniture and amber and white wallpaper, and amber and white chintz curtains and coverings. It suited the colour of my hair, Alice declared, and was becoming to my complexion. Yes, said Charles, looking at my hair with an expression that made me put my hand up to my head as if to hide it. I knew it was carelessly dressed.
I made a study that day of the girls' heads at school, and from that time improved in my style of wearing it, and I brushed it with zeal every day afterward. Alice had my room kept so neatly for me that it soon came to be a reproach, and I was finally taught by her example how to adjust chairs, books, and mats in straight lines, to fold articles without making odd corners and wrinkles. At last I improved so much that I could find what I was seeking in a drawer without harrowing it with my fingers, and began to see the beauty in order. Alice had a talent for housekeeping, and her talent was fostered by the exacting, systematic taste of her husband. He examined many matters which are usually left to women, and he applied his business talent to the art of living, succeeding in it as he did in everything else. Alice told me that Charles had been poor, that his father was never on good terms with him. She fancied they were too much alike, so he had turned him off to shift for himself when quite young. When she met him, he was the agent of a manufacturing company in the town where her parents lived, and even then, in his style of living, he surpassed the young men of her acquaintance. The year before they were married, his father died, and as Charles was his only child, he left his farm to him and ten thousand dollars, all he had. The executors of the will were obliged to advertise for him, not having any clue to his place of residence. He sold the farm as soon as it was put in his hands, took the ten thousand dollars, and came back to be married. A year after, he went to Rossville, and built a cotton factory three miles from town, and the cottage, and then brought her and Edward, who was a few months old, to live in it. He had since enlarged the works, employed more operatives, and was making a great deal of money. Morganson's bills, she believed, were known all over the country. Charles was his own agent, as well as sole owner. There were no mills beside his in the neighborhood. To that fact she ascribed the reason of his having no difficulties in Rossville, and no enmities, for she knew he had no wish to make friends. The Rossville people, having no business in common with him, had no right to meddle, and could find but small excuse for comment. They spent, she said, five or six thousand a year. Most of it went in horses, she was convinced, and she believed his flowers cost him a great deal too. You must know, Cassandra, that his heart is with his horses and his flowers. He is more interested in them than he is in his children. She looked vexed when she said this, but I took hold of the edge of her finely embroidered cape and asked her how much it cost. She laughed and said, <laughs> Fifty dollars! But you see how many lapels it has. I have still a handsomer one that was seventy-five. Are they a part of the six thousand a year, Alice? Of course. But Charles wishes me to dress, and never stints me in money. And, after all, I like for him to spend his money in his own way. It vexes me sometimes he buys such wild brutes and endangers his life with them. He rides miles and miles every year, and it relieves the tedium of his journeys to have horses he must watch, I suppose. Nobody in Rossville lived at so fast a rate as the Morgansons. The oldest families there were not the richest, the Riders in particular. Judge Ryder had four unmarried daughters. They were the only girls in our set who never invited us to visit them. They could not help saying, with a fork in the neck, "'Who are the Morgansons?' But all the others welcomed Cousin Alice, 
and were friendly with me. She was too pretty and kind-hearted not to be liked, if she was rich, and cousin Charles was respected, because he made no acquaintance beyond bows and how-to-do's. It was rather a stirring thing to have such a citizen, especially when he met with an accident and he broke many carriages in the course of time, and now and then there was a row at the mills, which made talk. His being considered a hard man did not detract from the interest he inspired. My advent in Rossville might be considered a fortunate one. Appearance indicated it. I am sure I thought so, and was very well satisfied with my position. I conformed to the ways of the family with ease, even in the matter of small breakfasts and light suppers. I found that I was more elastic than before, and more susceptible to sudden impressions. I was conscious of the ebb and flow of blood through my heart, felt it when it eddied up into my face, and touched my brain with its flame-coloured wave. I loved life again. The stuff of which each day was woven was covered with an arabesque which suited my fancy. I missed nothing that the present unrolled for me, but looked neither to the past nor to the future. In truth, there was little that was elevated in me. Could I have perceived it if there had been? Whichever way the circumstances of my life vacillated, I was not yet reached to the quick. Whether spiritual or material influences made sinuous the current of being, it still flowed towards an undiscovered ocean. Half the girls at the academy, like myself, came from distant towns. Some had been there three years. They were all younger than myself. There never had been a boarding-house attached to the school, and it was not considered a derogatory thing for the best families to receive these girls as boarders. We were therefore on the same footing, in a social sense. I was also on good terms with Miss Pryor. She was a cold and kindly woman, faithful as a teacher, gifted with an insight into the capacity of a pupil. She gave me a course in history first, and after that physical philosophy, but never recommended me to moral science. When I had been with her a few months, she proposed that I should study the common branches. My standing in the school was such that I went down into the primary classes without shame, and I must say that I was the dullest scholar in them. We also had a drawing-master and a music-teacher. The latter was an amiable woman, with theatrical manners. She was a Mrs. Lane, but no Mr. Lane had ever been seen in Rossville. We girls supposed he had deserted her, which was the fact, as she told me afterward. She cried whenever she sang a sentimental song, but never gave up her tears, singing on with blinded eyes and quavering voice. I laughed at her dresses, which had been handsome, with much frayed trimming about them, the hooks and eyes loosened and the seams strained, but liked her, and although I did not take lessons, I saw her every day when she came up to the academy. She asked me once if I had any voice. I answered her by singing one of our Surrey hymns, Once on the raging seas he rode. She grew pale and said, Don't for heaven's sake sing that. I can see my old mother as she looked when she sang that hymn of a stormy night, when father was out to sea. Both are dead now, and where am I? She turned round on the music-stool and banged out the accompaniment of, O oh, pilot, tis a fearful night! and sang it with great energy. After her feelings were composed, 
she begged me to allow her to teach me to sing. You can at least learn the simple chords of song accompaniments, and I think you have a voice that can be made effective. I promised to try, and as I had taken lessons before, in three months I could play and sing, should those fond hopes e'er forsake thee, tolerably well. But Mrs. Lane persisted in affirming that I had a dramatic talent, and as she supposed that I never should be an actress, I must bring it out in singing. So I persevered, and thanks to her, improved so much that people said, when I was mentioned, she sings. The moral sciences went to Dr. Price, and he had a class of girls in Latin, but my only opportunity of going before him was at morning prayers and Wednesday afternoons, when we assembled in the hall to hear orations in Latin, or translations, and pieces spoken by the boys, and at the quarterly reviews, when he marched us backward and forward through the books we had conned like a sharp old gentleman he was, notwithstanding his purblind eyes. End of chapter 15